Hello, and welcome to MTC Audio Lab, brought to you by Melbourne Theatre Company. MTC Audio Lab is theatre for your ears, bringing great dramatic texts to life with some of your favourite stage actors. Melbourne Theatre Company acknowledges the Yalakut Willem peoples of the Bunwarung, the first peoples of country on which these recordings took place. We pay our respects to all of Melbourne's first peoples, to their ancestors and elders, and to our shared future. In this first series, you'll hear great Australian speeches performed by some great Australian actors. Directed by MTC Associate Director Petra Khalif, these recordings give voice and recognition to important speeches and texts from our history. You'll hear an introduction to the speeches by Petra at the beginning of the episode. In the landmark 1943 election, Dorothy Tangney was the first woman to be elected to the Senate. At 32 years old, she was a comparatively young parliamentarian. This is Dorothy Tangney's maiden speech to Parliament, 24th of September, 1943, read by Isabella Yenner. I realise my great honour in being the first woman to be elected to the Senate, but it is not as a woman that I have been elected to this chamber. It is as a citizen of the Commonwealth, and I take my place here with the full privileges and rights of all honourable senators, and, what is still more important, with the full responsibilities which such a high office entails. I pay tribute, first, to the wonderful achievements of our men and women in the fighting forces, who in every sphere of action have so gallantly upheld the prestige of Australia. I also pay tribute to the remarkable achievements of our allies, to the men and women of China who for so many years now have fought our common enemy, to the thousands of Americans who left their homes and came to our assistance. In our most crucial hour, when for the first time in the 150 years of our existence as a free nation, we were threatened by a foreign enemy. To our gallant Dutch allies who, from our Australian homeland, are now doing their utmost to drive back the Japanese aggressor to the confines of his own territory. To our gallant kingsmen in New Zealand, who for the second time, have shown that the word Anzac has no hollow meaning, but really symbolises the kingship of blood, which unites us and makes the peoples of the Commonwealth and of New Zealand the standard bearers of freedom in this far-flung outpost of the Empire. Particularly, I pay tribute to the women in industry who, for the first time, have been called upon to take their places in fields hitherto the prerogatives of men, especially those engaged in the engineering industry who have turned night into day and have pursued a way of life completely foreign to anything they had known before. I hope that when the day of peace comes, what has been so willingly surrendered by our workers in industry will not be forgotten, and that the maximum of what they have voluntarily given up in the war effort will be the minimum upon which our new industrial standards will be based. I pay tribute to the Curtin government which was called to office at a time of crisis unprecedented in the history of the nation, under conditions never before paralleled in this country. And with a minority in both houses, it was still able to call the nation to a total war effort and to coordinate the various forces necessary for the success of that effort. 
We know of the policy of regimentation imposed on the Australian people. Such a policy is absolutely foreign to our normal way of life. The imposing of it upon us must have been most distasteful to any government, and particularly to a Labour government. But we are not freed from the responsibilities which lie upon all of us to bring to the oppressed peoples of the world the same measure of freedom and democracy as we enjoy, and we must not rest from our labours until that happy state of affairs is instituted. We must remember that the government, which was recently elected by the people of Australia, has a twofold duty to perform. First and foremost, it is the winning of the war. There is also a very heavy responsibility upon the government to see that the peace shall not be lost. All of us know what happened after the last war, that it was a war to end wars and would make this country fit for heroes to live in. But instead of Australia being made fit for heroes to live in, it became a land for paupers to die in. We must be certain that a similar state of affairs shall not follow in the wake of this war. The last Parliament laid down the foundation of a plan of social services. Social security is the right of every Australian, and I trust that on the foundation already laid, we shall be able to build a much stronger edifice which, no matter how fierce the winds of reaction may blow against it, will be able to endure. Thus, we shall make this country what it should be, a model for all other democracies to follow. In order to do this, we must observe fully the Atlantic Charter. Every citizen has at least two rights, freedom from fear and freedom from want. In order to safeguard those rights, the Commonwealth Parliament will need to take over a great deal of work that has hitherto been regarded as the prerogative or duty of the states. If this war has done nothing else, it has at least made our people Australia-minded. We are no longer Western Australians, or Victorians, or New South Welshmen. We all are Australians, and we come here with a common duty to perform not in the interests of any special section of the community, but in the interests of Australia as a whole. We say that Australia is a democracy. I hope that that is true. I believe that if any democracy is to succeed, it must be an educated democracy, and its leaders must come from the people themselves. We must have federal control of education, and see that the various state education departments are freed from their present financial worries, and enabled to carry out a policy which will give to every Australian citizen the benefits which only education can confer. That applies also to our other social services. We have at present a system of pensions which, to my mind, are very inadequate. It is time that pensions were abolished, because we are all shareholders in this vast Commonwealth. There are seven million of us, and it is the duty of this Parliament to provide that men or women who have given a lifetime of service to the nation shall be given, when they reach pensionable age, not one pound six shillings a week as a dole, but their share of the national dividend which they have helped by their labour to create over the years. The medical schemes listed under the social service proposals should also be put into operation, because at present only the two extremes of our people are receiving the very best that medical science can give. The very poor receive it as a charity or dole, and at the other end of the social ladder we have those who can work to pay for it, but the people in between the vast middle class, have to spend the rest of their lives paying for one severe illness. 
We must have a healthy community, and prevention is better than cure. I therefore hope to see during the life of this Parliament legislation enacted which will remove from all the fear which comes from long protracted illness and ensure a decent standard of health in our community. Our present housing conditions are causing a great deal not only of discomfort but even of hardship to many members of the community. The Commonwealth Bank has now sufficient powers to enable it to help the workers to secure their own homes. By homes, I do not mean flats or one-room tenements. I am thinking of homes with gardens, to enable families to live in decency instead of being brought up like rabbits. The rehabilitation of the men and women of the forces will be perhaps the most important problem which will face this government. Because if those who have offered their lives so valiantly do not return to an Australia which is better than the one they left, their sacrifice will have been in vain. I hope that in this policy of reconstruction, we shall build on the very best of what is in the old system and discard the rest. We must also be very careful that those whom we select as the representatives of this nation at the peace conference shall be men and women of integrity, because I believe that women should play their part there, imbued not with a spirit of revenge, but with a spirit of justice, resolve that we and other democracies shall receive even-handed justice at the settlement. In this respect, I should like finally to remark upon the importance of Australia, first as a very vital unit in the British Commonwealth of Nations, and secondly as a vast Pacific power. The government's policy in connection with foreign affairs must take cognizance of the vital importance of Australia as a Pacific nation. The financial burdens which the Government of Australia will call upon the people to bear in the next few months will be heavy by comparison with peacetime requirements, but the times are very difficult and must be faced with courage. Great Australian Speeches was directed by Petra Khalid, with performances by Sharina Clanton, Mark Cole-Smith, Mark Downey, Greg Stone, Leonie Wyman, and Isabella Yenner. Theme music by Clements Williams. Sound design and engineering by Nick Woolen. Produced by the team at MTC. Enjoyed this episode? Find more Audio Lab episodes or learn how you can support Melbourne's home of theatre at mtc.com.au.